1: Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 47th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is World Boogie, the music that changed the world. I'm joined by David A. Less, the author of Memphis Mayhem, a story of the music that shook up the world. The publisher is ECW Press in Canada. A third-generation Memphian, David has studied Memphis music for over 40 years, including work done for the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Smithsonian Institution, and the Gibson Guitar Foundation. He's been published in Rolling Stone and Downbeat, among other places. Welcome to the show, David.
0: Thank you. It's good to be here.
1: I'm really looking forward to the conversation. I have many more questions than we'll get to in about half an hour. I'm going to start with a provocative comment you make in the book. You said three times in its history, the course of history itself has significantly looped through the city of Memphis. What are those three occasions?
0: Well, I think that that the first time, um, I mean, it may have happened more than this, but the the three times I'm talking about certainly where uh, I think world history was changed as a result of of what happened in Memphis. The first time was when W.C. Handy, in 1909, notated uh, blues music. Uh, He had seen it. It was a regional music. It was down in the Delta. um, And and it literally was something that just happened around here. Uh, Mr. Handy saw it, notated it, and as a result, because at the time, this was before phonograph records were really the ubiquitous way to to disseminate music, it was all done through sheet music. And uh, by notating it and publishing it, um, in sheet music, it took what was essentially, uh, regional music, the blues, and made it into the bedrock of, uh, contemporary Western music. I mean, it's, it's, it is the, the bedrock, I, I guess, not to use that word twice, but, um, oh, jazz and, of course, blues and rock and roll and gospel. And, you know, it, it, it really is what, what became of that. The second time was in 1954. When Elvis Presley uh, recorded in Sam Phillips' studio and uh, took, again, an African-American musical form and, uh, and started playing it and created Rockabilly, which was essentially rock and roll. Um, and, and I think that, again, some controversy as to whether that was the first rock and roll, but I think it was significant in that uh, Elvis was the one who was able to take it out across the world. Um, whether or not he was the first one to play it, you know, we will, we'll, that's a long discussion, but, um, he was a good looking kid and all the elements fell into place and he was able to become the first real rock superstar. Uh, and then the third time is a tragedy again involving an African American, which was the assassination of Dr. King here in Memphis. And I think what that showed was, um, Into the white community, it showed uh, the righteousness of civil rights. And I think it it had a huge impact into things that came later. So I would say those three things were the the, the, that was sort of my elevator pitch to my agent and to the publisher. And um, there are elements that run throughout the book.
1: Yeah, well, I think it's a legitimate pitch that you made, and obviously, you were successful. I was just recently watching a documentary on Robert Johnson, and I was struck by the fact, just pure coincidence, that uh, two Mississippi boys, both musicians, Elvis Presley and Robert Johnson, died on the same day. They died on August 16th, 1938 and 1977, respectfully. Um, You mentioned in the book that Memphis serves as a regional hub. Uh, You mentioned that people come in from Arkansas. For instance, Johnny Cash did so. People can come in from wider parts of Tennessee, like Carl Perkins. But they also definitely come, like Elvis Presley, from Mississippi. Isn't it true in some ways that Memphis is almost like the the de facto capital of the state of Mississippi, given the fact that Jackson, the state capital, is such a small town?
0: Well, it it has been referred to as the capital of Mississippi. And of course, there's the famous quote about uh, the Mississippi Delta beginning in the lobby of the Peabody Hotel, which is in Memphis. Um, Everybody came here. Um, It was, um, you know, it was an an agrarian society. And Memphis was the big city. And you came here to sell your, um, you know, whether it was cotton, which, of course, was a huge industry, uh, hardwoods. I mean, whatever it was you came to sell, you came to Memphis to sell it. And as a result, you had some money and you'd worked hard all year. You also came for entertainment. You came to to buy your clothes. I mean, um, Memphis was a place that that uh, that drew from three states. I mean, it's, it drew from Arkansas, Mississippi, and Tennessee, and it, it still does to a, to a large extent. It is a, a tri state city. It sits right on the borders of Arkansas.
1: Yeah, no, I just had an author on a bit ago whose specialty is William Faulkner, and he made a reference in the book that one came up to Memphis to to shop and to sin those those are the two things that were going to take place.
0: But you can still do that.
1: I imagine so. I imagine so. Um, so let me go way back to the start of the book. There's a foreword by uh, a gentleman whose last name I'd probably kill. It's uh, Gorilnik, Peter Gorilnik.
0: Peter Gorilnik.
1: Uh, okay. I promise you I'd I'd, I'd slaughter it. <laughs> uh, um, there, there's a couple comments there that I think really get into the, the flavor of the book and the flavor of Memphis, because I'm going to assume those two things are a bit the same since you're third generation uh, resident, or your family is, uh, there's a comment that the singer in Memphis always lags behind the beat. And then you make the comment that uh, particularly for black musicians in Memphis, uh, the the pocket, which is a term you can explain to listeners, the pocket is later in the beat. So what is the, the greater metaphysical significance of uh, lagging or being deep in the pocket?
0: Well, the, the pocket essentially in musicians' parlance is, is where they all feel the beat. Um, I mean, all of the music is four-four uh, count, in the, meaning quarter notes, four four to a measure. <clears throat> so it'd be counted one, two, three, four. Sure. Um, now, you can count that one, two, three, four. So it, it depends on, on where you find uh, your comfort level as musicians. And musicians in Memphis, historically, have lagged beat a little bit. They're a little bit behind, not so much that they would be considered dragging in terms of, um, oh my God, these guys don't know how to play. Certainly no one would say that about Memphis musicians. Yep. Uh, But uh, it's, it's the comfort level. And I think what that does is create a certain anticipation because you know it's coming. You know? I mean, and pop music historically is right on top of the beat, which the Beatles were and black music and r&b is behind the beat and memphis is a little further behind than that uh jazz players play right up on top of the beat they they you know they're schooled they're reading they they basically tend to play on the beat but um r&b and and it's just a tendency that's occurred in memphis um i've traced it back to the 1930s
1: okay well i i was struck by the the, the pattern and also by such a a, a warm, nice introduction by Peter. I mean, he refers to uh, what's coming for us as, as readers about the the warm, relaxed, anecdotal narrative style, uh, Memphis-like in its relish for contradiction, digression, unpredictable oddities, and so forth. Would you say those are indeed qualities of Memphis?
0: Well, yeah, I I, I think so. I mean, without uh, you you just read a laundry list of things. (laughs) I don't remember all of what you just said, but um, (laughs) I do know that Peter's um, uh, introduction was was real spot on. I've known Peter, um, let's see now, 40 years. And um, for the last 39, he's been uh, on me to write this book. (laughs) <laughs> uh, we, we go way back he knows me pretty well
1: okay well one of the things that came up in your own comments through the book uh at one point you say the independent spirit of music remains a core part of the city's dna so I, i'm uh hounding you a little bit but I'm, I'm really curious about what you would think is the the city's dna it seems like independence is absolutely one of them and maybe being uh behind the, the beat or not on top of the beat is another part of it. A- anything more that you think is part of the, the city's DNA?
0: Well, I think that, that, you know, when you, again, talking about the independence, um, there are places that chase hits, uh, meaning they, they, uh, if they have a hit, you're going to hear four or five that sound like it. trying to, trying to, you know, recapture that magic or, or they basically are like a factory. And again, not to denigrate natural, um, because they have great musicians, most of them coming from Memphis, but regardless, <laughs> um, they have a lot of really uh, spectacular musicians and a great history, and they've made great yep. music. But um, their their sessions are three-hour sessions. They're AFM sessions, American Federation Musician Sessions. So they go in, they have three hours to cut a song or an album or whatever it is they've got sketched out. So they know ahead of time, listen, here are the charts musicians go in they read the charts they read the parts they lay it down bam you got a record in Memphis they don't do that um, they book studio time for eight hours and maybe they get a song or maybe they don't um, but they they give the musicians a little more freedom uh, to participate and that gives them a sense of independence and, a, and ownership into the music that I think doesn't exist in la and it doesn't exist in Nashville, and Um, maybe used to exist in in New York, but probably doesn't anymore. Um, I mean, there there are certain pockets all over where people still record like that. But for the most part, Memphis has has a long history of going in the studio, putting in great people. You know, you get the best musicians, you get the best producer, you get the best engineer in the best studio, and you see what you get. And often what you get is something really spectacular. And whether it's a hit or not, is, is not the point. The point is to make music. The point is to wind up with um, you know with, with art. And I think again, everybody wants art. Every musician you know is an artist. I'm not trying to, to, to say it happens in Memphis and it doesn't happen elsewhere, but it seems like it happens more often more often in Memphis and as a result, you get Elvis Presley as a result. you get Stax records as a result. you get Aunt Peebles, you get Al Green. Uh, you get Charlie Rich, you get Johnny Cash, you get Jerry Lee Lewis. Um, all of those people made their most important records in Memphis. And I don't think that's a coincidence.
1: Yeah, no, I, I really was struck by that independent spirit. I mean, it was both stated and I felt it as I went through the you know, trajectory of these people's careers and, and things that they recorded in Memphis. And maybe I'm a bit sensitive or interested in it because I'm from Twin Cities where we've had Prince who uh, definitely wanted to be an artist and definitely wanted to be independent and had his uh, famous feuds with the record label and so forth. Um, so anyway, that, that's kind of a bit where it came up. Um, I want to spend a lot of the time on music, but I want to spend a little bit on history as well. It seems to me that the yellow fever epidemics of the 1870s, post-Civil War, uh, were significant for the city of Memphis. You make some allusions there. Uh, can you share that with the, the listeners, why you think that kind of... Added to the flavor, or, or how Memphis developed.
0: Well, I think that that overall in the book, the underlying theme is is essentially a racial collision um, in Memphis and racism, which occurred in Memphis and occurred, you know, everywhere else. Again, we don't we don't hold a patent on racism, unfortunately, and you know, yep it's it's still uh, it's still there. But I think what happened in Memphis in the eighteen seventies is there were three yellow fever epidemics. And, um, you know, prior to that, Memphis was a, a growing, thriving metropolis. I mean, again, it was situated where everybody came to Memphis, you know, even then they came to sell their wares and they came for entertainment. And um, and people moved here. And it was, it was um, for the time, again, 1870s, not like it is today, but was what would be considered a major city. Um, when the yellow fever epidemics hit, especially the third one, Uh, Everybody who could afford to leave left, you know, Uh, and the people who could afford to leave. Again, this is this is five years after the end of the Civil War that they began uh, were essentially white people and landowners and people who um, of means, you know, because they could afford to pack up and leave. And what that left was a disparity, um, a racial disparity. The African-Americans who were here um, saved. And uh, whether by choice or, or necessity, and many became heroes in, in terms of yellow fever. I mean, Grace Stanley ran a house of prostitution that they turned into a hospital to treat yellow fever um, patients. And she died from yellow fever. So it's not like they they, they left and, and were not accomplished, accomplished and were not able to contribute. They did referring any African-Americans who remained. So afterwards, the, the city lost its charter. And it wasn't until the 1890s that the charter was, was back and people started moving back. Um, so you had a major metropolitan area with an infrastructure that was largely populated by African-Americans and free slaves. And that created a racial imbalance that continues. You know, I, I think today, I think it set the tone. For race in, in Memphis, you know that uh, you know our city leaders would not want to say it continued, but it but and it and it, it continues. But I'm not saying that the level of racism exists the same way it does it did in 1890. Don't get me wrong; I, I'd be wrong sure. if I did.
1: Well, um, one one thing that struck me was uh, black entrepreneurship because there's off after all Robert Church and then his son Robert Church Jr. and You're talking about a very major banks, Solvent savings bank, the start of the NAACP, uh, making sure that black voters could vote because Robert Church, who was a wealthy businessman, paid the poll taxes. For me, when I think of that, you know, taking that void with people leaving the town and losing the charter, and then I think ahead to stacks records and so forth, I go, wow, there, there's, there is, you know, the determination to forge ahead here. And it's certainly coming in no small part from the black community
0: absolutely I mean i I think that um, again I say racial collision i I see music as a bridge between the races in Memphis um you know there are there have been there were mixed race uh, recording sessions here uh, very very early on uh, there were mixed-race jam sessions really early on you know as early as buddy Goodman took out Teddy Wilson in 1936 so You know, go back to the 1940s, and and white musicians were able to sit in, and they were recording together. Um, Sam Phillips in the 1950s used black and white musicians Um, at high Records in the late 50s and early 60s. They had black and white musicians. By 1961, Booker T and MGs became the first, I guess, the poster boys for uh, for black white musicians nationally. I mean, they were the rhythm section on all these records and there's two whites
1: and two blacks. So yeah, no, yeah, no. The amount of we're going to keep getting into this about the amount of music, especially from say the, you know, Sam Phillips and on into the seventies. It's just astonishing contributions to American culture. Let me go back to uh, I guess it's a it's a fairly famous trope. Uh, in addition to the one about uh, uh, the the Delta starting in the lobby of the Memphis of the Peabody Hotel, uh, but. You make a reference to Beale Street being Black America's main street. And that really stayed with me as I went through the book. Because I thought of Bronxville and Chicago. I thought of Harlem, of course. I thought of Motown, New Orleans. But it really does seem that Memphis can indeed, through Beale Street, claim that distinction. And uh, I don't know what more you want to say about the, the pantheon of how African-Americans have stepped their, their contributions to society on American life. But Obviously, Memphis is central to that story.
0: Well, I think in Memphis, uh, you know, again, you talk back about the history and losing the charter. And, and of course, uh, Robert Church was the South's first black millionaire uh, and contributed so much to the community here. But um, Memphis had one of the city bosses like Chicago. I mean, they had they had Boss Crump, who was mayor one term, but controlled politics for 50 years. And Boss Crump, um, E.H. Crump, Sr., family's still here, you know, um, they, Boss Crump relied on the black community uh, to vote. And as such, they relied on him to protect them. And he did. So Beale Street was sort of hands off. Uh, they were allowed to do whatever, uh, you know, African-Americans control the street. And although they didn't own the real estate, they owned most of the businesses, especially the entertainment businesses in the evening. And the patronage was primarily African-American. And so it was considered a wide open street and Memphis was considered a wide open town. And no small part of that was the protection of Boss Crump. And I think that's different than a lot of the other cities. I mean, you know, there's Central Avenue in L.A. and there's, uh, you know, the, the great uh, streets you talk about, but I don't know that they had the patronage of, of Boss Crump.
1: No, I do not think they did. And, of course, it's uh, H- Handy's, uh, you know, started of the blues was tied into the, the Crump campaign.
0: Well, that's true. Uh, the, what was considered to be the first blues um, that was published was basically a campaign song for Boss Crump.
1: Yeah, I thought that was a fascinating little detail. And it does speak to the synergy and the protection that you're talking about here.
0: Well, you know, it's funny. Memphis, Memphis is a funny place, if you can tell from the book and from the conversation. We have um, markers. We have such a rich history, particularly of music, that we have markers everywhere in town of, um, you know, someone did this, and we have blues notes all over Beale Street of people, and, you know, it, it, the town is, uh, I don't want to use the word filthy, but the town is filthy with all this stuff. There's so many <laughs> things uh, about history, and yet the location that Handy first played the blues in public has no marker. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not really sure why.
1: So let's let's go over to the the music now because I just can't resist, and I want to make sure the last ten minutes get fully devoted to that. So so one thing I've got to start with is the American Sound Studios. Uh, I did I'd never heard of them. I've certainly heard of the songs recorded there, but their run from 1967 to 72 is Absolutely astonishing, and if you can just talk about that a little bit.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, American Sound Studios was started by Chips Moman uh, and his partner and uh, silent partner. I mean, Chips was the producer, and um, what happened was um, as Chips left Stax, he started Stax Records when Stax started, um, you know, shortly after, and then he had a fight with Jim Stewart and, and went off and set up his own studio. Uh, He sued Stewart, and he got money from that and set up a studio. And he reached a point where um, he was a very in-demand producer. And and producers like to use the same musicians a lot. That's why there was a house band at Stax. That's why Booker T and EMGs were at Stax. That's why the Hodges brothers were at high. Uh, And so he created a a rhythm section. And, And Memphis rhythm sections tend to make hit records. So they would fly them to New York to make a record or take them to Nashville to make a record. And finally he, he said, look, we're not going anywhere else. You want my rhythm? <laughs> You're coming to me. We're, we're going to get the studio time. So um, everybody came to America and they uh, created, uh, I think at one point, I want to say they had 20 and I'm thinking back on the book. So, you know, you correct me if I'm wrong. They had like 25 of the top 100 records, Uh, on a chart that were recorded there. Maybe it was even more than that. Um, But they made really important records by Elvis, Neil Diamond, Joe Tex, uh, Alex Chilton, and, you know, the box tops.
1: Dusty Springfield, yeah.
0: Yeah, Dusty Springfield, Dusty in Memphis. I mean, Jerry Wexler started bringing people there. Uh, And all all the labels, you know, found it, and they all wanted to go there and make records. Wilson Pickett. Uh, You know, and they were able, this rhythm section was adept at solo music, at pop music. I mean, they play anything Uh, and, and successfully and make hit records on any particular genre.
1: Yeah, no, you're right on the statistic, by the way. It was 25 of the top 100, hot 100 on Billboard in a single week, where it's all out of that one studio, which I've seen the photographs. It was a pretty nondescript building. We're not talking about a cathedral. And uh, 120 top 10 records between 67 and 72. That's, I mean, there was a lot of music going on in Memphis. That's just, you know, part of it. But what an astonishing contribution. So let's switch over to to Sam Phillips for a moment if we could. So at one point in the book, I was uh, gobsmacked when you, uh, I guess you were talking to someone and you asked about the timing because apparently Phillips uh, had a nervous breakdown. I don't want to make light of it. In fact, it was a second nervous breakdown. And was followed by shock treatment. And that came prior to ever recording Elvis. So I think your point in that conversation recorded in the book was maybe you had a bit of a madman who was actually uh, had the foresight to record Elvis and make this stuff happen.
0: Well, I mean, that was, that was sort of a humorous um,
1: tongue in cheek. Yeah.
0: Yeah. A very tongue in cheek sort of comment was, was, was rock and roll, Did rock and roll drive him mad or was <laughs> the product of a madman. Uh, and he, you know, it's a product of a madman. Of course he was not mad. I knew Sam very well. Yeah. And, um, and he was a, he was a genius, but I think that what Elvis did and Sam and the reason it worked were a set of circumstances that would not have existed elsewhere. Sam had a whole career in R&B. He had made hit records, um, primarily for other labels and his own, uh, a black artist before Elvis came in. So he, He understood that you could make money. He had made money at it. He had a real feeling for black music. He understood black music in a way that other producer in another city might not have. So when Elvis came in and started goofing around and playing black music, Sam got it in a way that other producers would not have got it um, as a result of his background and what was there. And plus the whole ecosystem in Memphis, we had a pressing plant. We had uh, radio, great radio stations, and he was able to get it on the radio. He was able to get it pressed. He was able to put it out. And he recognized, um, you know, the value financially and artistically of, of that. And that's essentially why Elvis was so important and why Elvis was allowed to develop in a way that um, if he were in Nashville, uh, you know, I think one of the quotes is they just said, you know, if he started hiccuping, they'd say stop that. what are you doing stop it well sam got it you know right away um you know
1: no i I thought that was cool also i mean sam it's mentioned in the book launched one year after he first recorded elvis w-h-e-r an all-female radio station uh run i guess by his wife in part or entirely but i mean what what an innovation that was
0: oh absolutely i mean it was it was all women on air it was all women salespeople the manager was a woman. Um, you know, it was entirely run by women, um, not just for women. I mean, it was an easy listening station. I'm sure they had yes. listeners too. But um, radio, you know, as is, is innovative as as Memphis is in, uh, in music, I think it's equally as innovative in radio. Um, we've done some pretty startling radio things here. And you're doing
1: yeah, it right no. now. Yeah, well, WDIA was the first all-black format in 1949. Um, you know, that's pretty cool as well. So, uh, no, I absolutely agree with you. So, you know, we got maybe five minutes, maybe a bit more. Um, There's so many musicians we could talk about. I'll, I'll throw out a few possible names, but maybe you just pick one that you want to talk about, and maybe it's on my list or maybe it's not, but I'll just throw out a few obvious ones, Otis Redding, Al Green, Booker T and the MGs, a big star with Alex Chilton. Any of those or somebody else you want to go to that just is a, a fun Interesting thing you want to make a comment on regarding musician and, and Memphis?
0: Well, Big Star, you know, is, is one that um, has a high resonance with um, with people still around the world. Um, it didn't at the time it came out. The band was a, a financial flop an artistic success, but a financial flop. Jody Stevens is is still alive. He's the last member of the band still alive. Alex Chilton had been uh, a teen success- sensation. He was the lead singer for the Box Tops when he was 16 years old. And so he'd had number one records and they started this uh, band. And it doesn't really sound like Memphis. It's, it's a, it's a power pop band, which is a different format from Memphis. We don't, we hadn't done much of that. Although we do have, you know, people uh, who did it and still do it and did it very well, but it was recorded at Arden studios with the great John Fry. And Arden is a place that, you know, much like American, you look at the things that have been recorded there and who recorded at Arden, and it ain't that different from American. I mean they don't get the same uh, credit, but I mean Bob Dylan's t v wonder, Led zeppelin, um, you know I mean the list goes on and on and on, and Big star was sort of the the band that came out of there um that that John developed. He was a very fry was a was a was a great person in the music community here. And he allowed people studio time to come in and hone their crafts and not worry about studio time. And, um, and you know, the importance of John Fry to Memphis music uh, can't be uh, overstated. Yeah.
1: And I, and I'm sorry I left that studio out early. I mean, there's just, there's, there was so much music coming out of Memphis from so many directions, but yes, absolutely. I think the, uh, yes, the other musicians there. I think Keith Richards came by at one point. Um, you know, yeah. wh- whoever else. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No. I mean, everybody recorded there, and still do. I mean, it, it, it's been a uh, a source of uh, you know you, you never know who's there because they like most studios don't announce. But sure. You look at the gold record on the wall. You know, Leon Russell. I mean, everybody recorded there um, back in the day, and and it, it's been. Uh, it's a great studio. I mean, it's a fantastic studio. The only other person I would maybe talk about would be Jim Dickinson, if we have time.
1: Sure, go right ahead.
0: Um, Dickinson was um, a Memphis musician, a white musician, uh, who was really, started his career in the 50s and uh, died in 2009. And during his time, he was uh, a producer and a session musician. And he played with uh, everybody. who was part of again one of these great rhythm sections that came out of Memphis called the Dixie Flyers, and moved to Jerry Wexler moved them to Miami to make records, and so he's recorded with everybody, and he produced great records on Ralcooter. He produced, um, you know, he he played on sessions with Aretha Franklin. He played on Wild Horses uh, by the Rolling Stones. He played in Bob Dylan. I mean, he, he was uh, a very very influential popular guy, but he was sort of the spiritual leader for young musicians uh, in Memphis and and still retains that grip, you know, 12 years after his death as being influential to the whole group of musicians, including Amy Levere, his own children, North Mississippi All-Stars Luther and Cody Dickinson, um, you know, and, and on and on and on, Becky Russell, you know, all sort of um, owe a debt to, to Dickinson. Uh, I produced five records on him and you know, six or seven records with him. And um, he was a great friend and a very influential guy around here.
1: Well, I, I'm glad we gave him his, his due here. Uh, you mentioned uh, Aretha Franklin, was, of course, born in Memphis. Uh, I remember the first time I heard Alec Chilton with, I think the song's called The Letter. I mean, the just the raw power of that song. I mean, it made such an impression on me the first time I heard it. Let's just end with one last question. Let's bring things kind of up to date. Uh, obviously, now Memphis still has music going. I can think of Three Six Mafia, for instance, other groups. Uh, but it's also now very much in the, the music tourism industry, I suppose you could say, in part, thanks to Graceland. You have in the book a quote from uh, Junie Pizer, uh, from the center for Southern folklore on the 10th anniversary of Elvis's death, where she was quoted in a national publication saying Elvis died so we could pay our taxes. Tell us about Memphis nowadays.
0: Well, Memphis is still, um, I mean, there's still, uh, to use the word filthy with musicians. I mean, <laughs> um, it's just part of the culture and there are great sure. here and there are great places where, um, You know, you can go in these little places and hear music that's as good as anywhere Um, because the musicians, if if you can't play, you don't play. I mean, it's just like that. So there's a lot of music here. Um, There is a huge industry of of music tours and the rest of the world um, now knows what we have and and kind of beats a path here. Not in the last year, of course, because of the pandemic, but um, it was a $4 billion music tourism was a $4 billion industry. Uh, from Memphis. Memphis is not a huge city. So um, it's a major part of our economy, along with FedEx and other places. But um, it it is a real, it's really important. And we strive to make people, uh, there are museums, the Stacks Museum, the Rock and Soul Museum, part of the Smithsonian, Sun Records is open. Uh, you can come to Memphis and you're going to have an opportunity to learn the history and be entertained by great musicians. And, um, and you'll see where it all happened and, and get a sense of it. So, uh,
1: Well, and in fact, I, I am launching my American uh, Faces and Places tours in Memphis uh, come October. Uh, it's the city where my wife was born, um, down in Whitehaven, part of town, not, not such a subtle name. Um, and uh, I'm really looking forward to it. And we're going to get a chance to Good meet pleasure. as well. So I I want to thank you, David. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, This has been episode 47 of Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The topic's been World Boogie, the music that changed the world. My guest, David Less, he is the author of Memphis Mayhem, a story of the music that shook up the world. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. You can find other episodes at my company's website. That's the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com or you can go to the new books network website and I'm the original special series program on that network. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. Uh, this quote comes directly from David's book. It's Keith Richards talking about the impact on him when he first heard heartbreak hotel by Elvis Presley. And this is what he had to say. It was a stunner when I woke up the next day, I was a different guy. Until next time, be kind and stay safe.